Um, and I certainly heard a few as people came to talk to me. How do you deal with parents or children or, you know, emotions or things like that. But I also have quite a few things that I wanted to teach and talk about tonight. So I think I'll do it next time in a couple of weeks and get the themes and just imagine that some, something I say tonight will be helpful to you. I hope so. Um, and I'd like to speak a little, I'd like to speak some about the pilgrimage and the journey just that I just finished. Um, but before I do that, I have to say that um, I came in here tonight after being in the city at Age Song, where my mom, who's 91, is in hospice care, and she's just on the edge of leaving, dying. Um, I mean, it could be literally last breath any time, and I've been sitting with her, and my brothers have too, um, lots of family. And she's peaceful, and she's done. She said, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm done. So it's very tender and very poignant, um, but it's not tragic in some way. And she's gone through the cycles that one does as you start to die, if you've been, ever done hospice work, which is an amazing thing to do to be with people, it's so mysterious. Here we are, we think we're gonna last forever. You know, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, because a few days ago we could still engage her a bit and s sing her favorite songs from show tunes and tell jokes and things and then gradually it's more like leaving in a few words and so forth and now she's kind of lying back with her mouth open and her eyes are really on the other world, you know, in that place, and breathing just shallowly, and as if she did say, oh, there's light. And my brother said, what's it look like? Is it nice? She said, oh, it's nice. You know, that was yesterday. So, but it's very tender. And it says somewhere in the Mahabharata, I think, or the Bhagavad Gita, one of the kind of great mysteries, um, I, maybe Krishna's talking to Arjuna or something, it says, with, of all the great and amazing things in the world, um, what's truly amazing is that people can see others die all around them and still think it's not going to happen to them. <laughs> but because it's true, because death is stalking us, to use Castaneda's word, because death is over our shoulder, in some way, it makes life so much more alive um, because we don't know. So it becomes really precious. Just driving up here, you know, when the gates between the worlds open, when someone dies or is close to death or, or someone is born, all those mysterious moments, um, everything starts to shine more, the pebbles on the road and the, you know, the sunlight on the bay tree leaves and so forth, you realize the luminous nature of life, which it is. So I've come back from a couple of months away and partly on pilgrimage. Um, and I want to tell some stories from it, not like here's what happened on my summer vacation. <laughs> but pilgrimage is really a journey to change your perspective or renewal. It's an odyssey. Um, I remember K 
can't remember exactly the Middle English. I know somebody out there will tell me how the beginning of Chaucer's Canterbury tale starts. One that April with its showers pierced to the root. When the April showers pierce to the roots, then people go on pilgrimage. You know, so we're in April and it's pilgrimage time. And the Buddha recommended pilgrimage as a spiritual practice because it's a way of seeing your life and the world anew, stepping out of the small envelope of your identity and even the small self that's called the body of fear and seeing something more of the mystery. Now, one of the things I brought back from Burma, we were at all these great temples in Burma and India. I'll get, you get to see. And, and at the, I don't know if you can see it, but at the, at the big temples in Burma, um, the, the golden Buddha statues all have these fantastic things. And at first, I was a little bit kind of unsure, taken aback. Like, it's so damn kitsch, right? You know, and kitschy. And so it's like, oh my God, did they have to do this? It's like Las Vegas meets the Shwedigal or something like that. But then I was traveling with my partner, beloved partner Trudy, and she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, because she, she loves, first of all, she loves kitsch too. She loves Disneyland. She loves all this. She said, you have to understand, this is the Buddha radiating metta and loving kindness out all across the world. And every time you see the halos, you see this radiance of compassion and loving kindness going everywhere. And, and it's a little bit what pilgrimage does. You know, you see it in one way, eh, I don't like that, crabby, whatever. And then, oh, no, 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 there's a whole other way of understanding it and seeing it. So, it gives you new perspective. Oh, it does all kinds of things, right? It's got, it's got, it's got a whole program and it's... So it's, it's spreading loving kindness and compassion and joy to you all, even as you watch. So going to India, um, India is kind of amazing because it's modernizing and the, there are these uh, f- fabulous new airports that we flew in that hadn't been there the last time I was in India and, you know, computers and education spreading in all kinds of ways. But it's also a, still a place of tremendous antiquity. And we went to, among other places, to Benares, or Varanasi as it's called, on the Ganges River, and to Bodhgaya. And Benares is considered the oldest in, continuously inhabited city in the world. Now, there may be others, but it's certainly one a candidate. It's been there for five or 10,000 years. And, um, you go along the river, and there are the ghats, which is really a name for the stone kind of docks that line the river. And there's bathing ghats where pilgrims will come because the Ganges water is sacred. It cleanses you of your difficulties and sorrows. You should go there, right? Um, and, um, so, and, and so here are these, you know, droves of... Indian men and women in their clothes, in their incredibly colorful, beautiful saris, dunking themselves in the river with their clothes on and smiling and grinning because of being, finally making it to the Ganges. And then next to that is the laundry ghats, right, where all the saris are lying out, somebody's washed them and they're getting dried in the sun. And then, then there are the Maharaja's palaces that are there. And then 
Then you go to the fabled burning ghats, which are the places where people are brought along the river to um, about every 20 minutes or so, day and night, they'll carry a body down on a bamboo stretcher wrapped in silk and flowers and chanting Ram Nam Satyahe, Ram Nam Satyahe, a little procession, sometimes with a band, and, um, which means the only truth is the truth of the divine. And they dunk them in the river and let them dry off for a moment, for a few minutes, and then place them on a funeral pyre. Um, and it's kind of amazing to be there, um, to see it all so completely open. Um, you know, the candles that people put in the river and the prayers they make and the chanting. And it's not grim in Benares. It's actually completely natural. Everything is out there. Um, and you get in these rowboats that seem like they're as old as time. And uh, your boatman will row you to the burning gods, you know. And so here's the word of the words of the Buddha. He says, suppose a person who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and watched and carefully examined them. And after examining them, they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. And in exactly the same way does the meditator experience the physical sensations of the body, this river of emotions, the changing perceptions, the river or stream of thoughts and states of consciousness, here and now, examining them carefully and seeing them arise and vanish like bubbles on the Ganges. So the Ganges itself is kind of the place of teachings um, of how to live by the side of the river um, and not cling to what not hold on, not try to fix it, because you can't. And it's the river of time, you know. It's not just the river of water, but it's the river that yesterday's gone. And you know where yesterday is? It's back with the pharaohs and the dinosaurs, you know, and um, I don't know, Cleopatra and um, Plato and they're all in the same place, which is gone. <laughs> Yesterday never to be repeated. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it seemed so real, didn't it? And then, so what we have is the reality of the present. And the question in meditation then, as it said, is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. That we sit quiet the mind, open the hearts, and look at the mystery of being a human being. And then what do we want to do with this? So, um, being in the presence of both birth, walking in the mountains and having some amazing revelation, listening to sacred music, seeing a child be born, being in the presence of death, um, there's some way in which they all remind us of the mystery that we live in and take for granted. And being in Varanasi, what's kind of amazing is it's all there. Um, and people go to Benares, to Varanasi, to die. Because it's said that if you can 
get yourself there and be cremated in your ashes, put into the Ganges, then you enter paradise, nirvana, heaven, liberation, all different kinds of words for it. So you'll see old people who are there who've come on a pilgrimage, their last pilgrimage. It's kind of like Florida, only <laughs> a little, you know, more uh, spiritual. Um, and, you know, you can might have like pity on them because they look very poor. And they're looking at you and saying, hey, dude, you're on your way back to California. I've made it. I'm going to be in the Ganges. And there's this sense of beauty about it. So Trudy and I got out of our boat and walked around and watched the bodies and listened to the chanting and so forth. And then the person who we were sort of showing us around said, well, would you like to go to the hospice where we have people waiting and they have a place? And as we did, we went a little bit into that, not so much, and then got this whole story about how some people come and they're so poor they don't even have money for the, for the wood for the logs, not even enough tied in the hem of their garment, and would we make a contribution and so forth. So we did, and we got back in our, our boat, and our boatman, the eternal boatman in the ancient boat of time, is rowing us. And he said, so did they take you to the hospice? Yes. Did they tell you the story about these poor people who had no <laughs> logs? Oh, yes. He said, oh, those are the professionals. He said, they live outside the city and they come in every day and they get themselves in rags. And did you give money? Yes. And so it's also a business, you know, you have to understand. Just so we get, you understand that the whole of humanity in all our, you know, mishigash, to use a Sanskrit term, um, it's all there. Um, and yet, in the midst of it all, there's the sense of the sacred. And it's quite, quite moving. Um, the marketplace and the motorboats and the sadhus and yogis sitting by the side of the Ganges in, you know, meditation. And then there are the bodybuilders on the banks of the Ganges who have an iron bar with a couple of um, cement blocks on the end that they're lifting up and down, you know, and you just get everything. <laughs> But when you, when you are present for it, then it does raise the question, what matters to you? Here you have this incarnation. So we went from Burma to India. We went also to the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, the Mahabodhi temple, which is said to be the spot where the Buddha attained his enlightenment or his awakening. And there's this great spreading banyan tree, Bodhi tree, and a huge stupa behind it that's a couple of hundred feet tall and about a 10-acre park and you can sit under the tree. It's really moving and there's a river of pilgrims that come by and the Chinese Buddhist pilgrims come with their little drum and they're chanting in Chinese and then the Sri Lankans come and bow and they make their chants and at the same time there's a whole spread of Tibetans doing a monlam um, chanting there with their, those big horns, oh, you know, and the chanting and they're beating their drums and so forth. And then the princess of Thailand comes and they roll out red carpets under the tree and she makes offerings. And then, you know, a whole group of untouchable Buddhists, the um, Ambedkar Buddhists who left Hinduism because they were the lowest caste and they were treated so badly with so much racism. And they became Buddhists and they freed themselves, you know. And then I see this 
blind man going around the stupa, this old man making prayers and touching the stupa so he can walk around and by feel. Um, and then these beautiful Vietnamese schoolgirls come in their silk, you know, their silk audai and they look like angels going by. And um, we'd put our shoes, because there were a lot of pilgrim crowds, so we put our shoes up under the bush the first day we were there, Trudy and I, and I said, there's a place we can just, we'll come in the back way, you know, thinking I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, then we waited, we were there a long time, and it was evening, and they wanted to close up the park, and we went back up, because you, you barefoot on the marble and on the walkways, and only one of her shoes was there, and it was her great traveling shoes, and she was really upset, and so I get my flashlight, we're looking under all the bushes, and where could it have gone? And the guards come over and we explain and they watch us look for a while, kind of just amused. And we say, well, what do you think could have happened? And the guard just stands and looks at her like this kind of Zen master quietly for a couple of minutes, and a couple of seconds, and then says, dog. <laughs> you know, I mean, here we are at the Mahabodhi temple. Uh, and in the distance are the horns of buses, and there's loudspeakers, and you know, from the village, and all of these things. And in the midst of it all, there's this sense of vast silence. It doesn't matter. It's like sitting by the river and letting the sounds, and the pilgrims, and the prayers, and the dogs, and the bus horns, and the music that's playing over there, all that becomes the music of life. And you take your seat under the tree like the Buddha and remember, oh yes, it's possible to find a place of peace in the midst of all of this. And near the tree, there's a set of stone lotus carved and set into the ground, which was supposedly the walking place. When the, after the Buddha sat for a bit, he would get up and do his walking meditation. So I went walking there for a while and... I thought about Thich Nhat Hanh when he had come here, you know, several times, and we had thousands of people on the hillside all waiting and eating their apple mindfully, which was part of the preparation, and when is the great Zen master going to come? And finally Thich Nhat Hanh comes out and he walks up the road, and he walks so slowly and so mindfully each step, he talks about each step kissing the earth, that all 3,000 people breathe out, ah, at the same time, it's like, oh, yes, here we are, just present for this step, this breath, this moment. And that's what it felt like, walking back and forth there. And then I thought, well, the Buddha did this for a while, and he had some good experiences there. And then for 45 years, he walked the muddy and dusty roads of India, being at peace in himself and being so peaceful that he would enter villages and communities and so forth. And they'd say, who is this man who's come in? He seems so peaceful and so centered and so wise. What does he have to say to us? And so he would offer his teachings for those who are interested. And I began to imagine what it was like for him and what it would be like for me to take the sense of that mystery of form and emptiness, that everything appears like the bubbles and the Ganges and disappears, and that we can become, as we did in our meditation, the loving awareness, 
we can shift from our small identity to become the witnessing and say, what an amazing life. And here's joy and sorrow and praise and blame and gain and loss. And we rest in compassion and peaceful heart. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to live. You know, made a little vow to do that. But it's not that easy because I happen personally to be a bit of a speed freak, right? And I do things quickly and it's not like Thich Nhat Hanh, each step mindfully. I remember I was leading a long, three-month-long silent retreat. We have a two-month-long here in the spring and three months in our East Coast Center. Um, And this... European man, he was actually from France, who came because he'd been listening to my teachings for quite a long time and he wanted to sit and meditate with me and I work with him. And then he came in for our little meditation check-in meeting and he was kind of discouraged. And I said, well, what are you discouraged about? He said, you. (laughs) I said, oh, okay, this happens, right? He said, you sound so good when I listen to you, but then I see you running up and down the stairs like an Italian shoe salesman. And I think, this is my teacher, you know? So anyway, I took a vow, I'm going to try to get a little more like Thich Nhat Hanh, you know? To be present for things the way they are in each moment and, and in that presence, in that inner stillness, then respond wisely. But the fact is that when I sit in meditation, or when you do, when we all do, we sit by the river, the river of thoughts. You noticed that, I imagine, just now, the last half hour of sitting we did. The river of feelings, sad and excitement and guilt and joy and pleasure and... um, loneliness and grief and creativity and all those feelings change. I have this list of 500 emotions and you have them. And the river of sense perceptions, the sounds and the tingles in the body and the smells and so forth. And you are sitting by the river or you're sitting under the tree of enlightenment with that river of pilgrims going by. And what meditation invites for us is to rest in loving awareness. And I'm using that phrase for mindfulness and metta because it becomes so clear that what we need to open to wisdom, to open our hearts and quiet the mind, um, is this wedding of both awareness itself and love. And The point isn't to perfect yourself. It's not a kind of self-improvement thing. I'm going to sit and meditate neuroscience, which there's all this great neuroscience says I can be more productive and more focused and, you know, this and that. That's all good. But it's a much bigger invitation. It's the invitation not to perfect yourself, but to perfect your love and perfect your capacity to be present in this mystery and respond from your body and your heart and your mind in a wise way. So you said, and if if you remember from reading Herman Hesse's book Siddhartha in high school, you know, it's it's a great story 
um, at the end, the denouement is when Siddhartha sits by the river, he's been the ferryman, and he hears all the voices in the river, the lonely voice and the weeping voice and the joyful voice and the sound of children and the groan of the dying and the mysterious bubbles in the river. And when he doesn't pick and choose between them or bind himself to one voice, but hears the whole river, then he realizes the river consists of a harmony and he finds his peace in the midst of it. The beautiful thing about mindfulness and loving awareness, the invitation, is that it's never too late because where you're going is here and now. And so you get to be just where you are and see where you are with wisdom. And then stuff comes. You've noticed that. You've seen it on the bumper sticker, right? It happens. Fear, judgment, hurt, anger, clinging, grasping, confusion. Maybe you've noticed that come once in a while. And with loving awareness, with a kind of fearless compassion, you bow to it and you say, ah, yes, this too. This too is part of humanity. This is part of my life and everybody else's life. And... And you accept it, not in a passive way, but in, it's called the laughter of the wise. Oh yeah, this too. Your foibles and your longing and your beauty, and everybody has it. So before we went to India, we were in Burma. And if you raise the question, all right, this is a nice kind of sales pitch for meditation that Jack is giving us tonight, right? Sit by the river, become wise, gracious. Say, but does it really work? And Burma is one of the cradles of the Buddhist world. And we traveled a group of us together with this foundation I'm a part of called Partners Asia, visiting schools and clinics and projects and HIV things and all kinds of amazing things all around the country. Um, and it was very moving to see because there were people everywhere who were serving one another and helping. And of course, that's the community that we went to visit, the communities. Um, I remember in the far north toward the border of China in Lashio, they, our trip, we were taken to uh, a monastery, a retreat center, um, that was run by a Burmese Buddhist nun in her early 40s. And she had been diagnosed with metastatic cancer in her 20s, in her early 20s, and refused surgery. I think partly if you look at the rural Burmese hospitals, you would refuse surgery too, probably. Um, but instead, she went out into the jungle and found one of the great herbal healers of that area. And she also began to meditate. And she took all these herbs and she said she sat. She said, and there was fire in her body and it would burn here for hours and days. And then as she paid attention and let the fire burn out the cancer, then it would move someplace else and burn over there. And she sat and walked and practiced in this way for a couple of years, you know, intense pain and 
all of that. Hours and hours. We asked how, well, how many hours a day did you practice? And she said, continuously, for a couple of years. And she cured herself. She left the forest and somehow it burned through her body and she was cured. And she began to tell people and they asked her to teach them what she'd learned. So she started to teach and she made a little place she could do it. And then through our foundation and so forth, we and the, all the people that we work with are Burmese people on the ground. So we have these connections with nuns and abbots and school teachers and community leaders who have a lot of integrity and heard of her or connected with her and gave some money to help her build this meditation center. But it wasn't for meditation exactly because it's four stories and room for a hundred people. She takes in orphans. That's some of the first people she taught. But mostly she teaches abused and battered women. It was all for women. She teaches people who have mental illness. She teaches the people who are homeless in her area. She takes the people that are in the greatest distress. And I would think, hmm, I'm not sure if they should come on a retreat, the level of trauma and mental illness and abuse and so forth. But this woman doesn't matter. She said, I did it, you're going to do it. You come in, I don't care what suffering you've got. Sit down, put your butt on the cushion. I'm going to teach you how to meditate and you can do this. And her strength of will and her purity, this kind of beautiful purity of what she had done in herself somehow makes a field in which people come and they say, okay, I will, I can. And it's really beautiful to be in her presence. And then, remember we were leaving, walking down the stairs from the third to the second floor, and this old woman came up to Trudy, this woman who had just almost no teeth, you know, and clearly had had a really pretty terrible life. Her body looked that way. And she didn't speak much English, and she grabbed Trudy's arm and looked at her and smiled and said, touching her heart, peace of mind, mind is here, peace of mind, peace of mind, and smiled that she had found that there, no matter what she had lived through. And so you ask, you know, does this work? Um, what better thing is there to do than to learn to find this in yourself in all the circumstances of your life? Zen Master Suzuki Roshi talks about it this way. He says, Suppose your children are suffering from a hopeless disease. You don't know what you can do. You can't lie in bed. Normally the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed, but now because of your mental agony, you cannot rest. You pace up and down and in and out, but this doesn't help. Actually, the best way to relieve your mental suffering is to sit in meditation, even in such a confused state of mind and bad posture. If you have no experience sitting with this kind of difficulty, you're not yet a true Zen student. No other activity can appease your suffering. In all the restless positions you know have, you have no power to accept your difficulties. But when you sit in meditation, whether whatever is happening in your body and mind, you have the power to accept things as they are, whether they are agreeable or disagreeable. And in continuous practice, 
under succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you realize the marrow of meditation and acquire its true strength and its true gifts. So sometimes people think, well, I'm sitting and I'm restless or I'm bored or I'm lonely. You know, I should get up and open the refrigerator or go online, right? That would be easier. But if you're restless, be restless. Or bored, be bored. Or if your body aches, tend it with kindness, but stay there and learn the marrow of your practice. Learn that kind of dignity because you'll need it. You will, you know. I mean, we all do in some way. And so we went and visited HIV projects and projects that empowered women. And we went to this school run by another nun um, called the Apamada School. And Apamada means the, the delight of presence. Pamat in Sanskrit means um, losing your way or kind of not here so much. And Apamada means you're really alive, you're really present. Um, and we walked into this school, which just has a tin roof and some pillars, and the desks were so crowded with kids that even if you were left-handed, you had to write with your right hand because there wasn't room for the kids all sitting next to each other otherwise. And 200, 250 little kids, and the part we went into had the first and second graders, right? These huge eyes and bright cheeks, and they saw us and they all just smiled, smiled and then they sang to us and it was like being knocked over by waves of love, you know, because it's little children and they're looking at us. We're, we're weird, it's true, you know. And then they're sing, they sang to us and it was just gorgeous and it was so sweet. Um, and they were so joyful. And then we talked with the nun who started the school who was equally joyful and happy as these children. And I asked her why she had done this and... Um, it turns out that she had been a nun for some years, that it was a friend of one of the Spirit Rock teachers, Carol Wilson, who'd known her. And, and she'd been a scholar. She'd studied Buddhist texts and so forth and meditated. So she'd sort of developed herself. But she was, I'm not sure what the right word, unsatisfied, not all that happy, really. Okay, I've done this, now what? And then there were some orphans that came through and she decided to tend them and some migrants who came through whose children needed tending and she started to teach them and it started to make her happy. And so she got more and within two and a half or three years she had 250 kids, right? And got some other teachers and some donations and so forth. And I said, well, why are you doing this? And she grinned. She said, how else could I learn the perfections of the Buddha of patience and love and dedication and generosity and wisdom and straightforwardness and courage. These are the paramitas, the qualities of the awakened heart. She said, if I want to dedicate myself to live like a Buddha, what better way could I learn this? And she said, and then I get to teach this to all these kids. And they also get to be bodhisattvas. I mean, what a great deal, you know? So happy. They help me and they help others. So when the Dalai Lama wakes up early in the morning to do his prayers and practices, one of the prayers he makes comes from Shantideva, the Bodhisattva vows. May I be a bridge, a raft, a boat to cross the flood. May I be medicine for those who are sick. May I be food for the hungry. May I be a resting place for the weary. 
May I be a lamp for those in the darkness and inspiration for those who've lost their way. And may I do this as long as earth and sky and stars and galaxies exist, as long as beings exist, may I appear with beings until we are all liberated together. Some little prayer like that or whatever. And that's the spirit of this nun, the Bodhisattva vows. But it's also possible for you in your work as a parent or a gardener or creating a conscious business or a healer or an artist or serving the community or a builder or whatever it is that you do. You could do it not just to do it. That's kind of boring, actually. But you could make it magnificent. You could also do it as the practice of awakening. And the people in Burma that we met, so many of them were warm-hearted and gracious. And that's one of the reasons people love to go and travel there is that there's, the culture has this great generosity about it. But it's also a time of significant trouble. There have been 50 years of a very oppressive military dictatorship that ended in part two years ago. And Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner, was released from... 17 years of house arrest and some political freedom. There's now been some elections and things like that. But at the same time, there's growing ethnic conflict and anti-Muslim violence. Um, And the military underneath is somehow stoking this a little bit because they want to get... they want to get people to feel that they need the military rather than Aung San Suu Kyi and freedom. They need this to keep them safe. It's a little bit like former Yugoslavia or Egypt or something like that. When things are, when the oppression is lifted, then the unfinished business of the culture, the conflict between people and so forth, will surface. And there are people who play on it and make it worse and misuse it in some way, including some. Buddhist monks who are behaving very badly. I just finished writing an article called Buddhists Behaving Badly um, for Chambala Sun. There are 500,000 monks in Burma, and it's not many. I mean, 1% maybe or less. Um, but they're misusing the Buddhist teaching and saying the Buddha, it conflates nationalism to Buddhism. The Buddha says you have to protect the Dharma by any means, even violence, against these interlopers and And people don't know that they're not really offering true teachings. And because the people there are mostly still afraid, 50 years of military dictatorship and secret police, and they haven't been taught to think for themselves. And they don't have yet then access to the the teachings of redemption that my teacher, for example, Mahagosananda in Cambodia, taught forgiveness around the whole country, walk through the killing fields teaching people forgiveness. And there are some monks and people who are starting to do it. Um, But this has been spreading. And at the same time, we met with, and I worked a little bit with some of the amazing activists who are saying, we can't let this happen. Ang Zaw, who runs this uh, journal called the Irrawaddy, and his brother who'd been in prison for 10 or 12 years and tortured and so forth. It's a journal that tells the truth, and it's now online and newsstands, and it really tells what's happening. And Zinmar Ong, this woman 
who's working with women's empowerment in the society. And there's this beautiful picture online of her getting an award sandwich between Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama as one of the great international women of the year. But mostly she's in the trenches and she knows she could be thrown back in prison in any moment. And she's bringing women together and teaching them to think and to stand up and, you know, what economic justice looks like. And others who are doing the same thing. We met these amazing people, met with Muslim leaders and Buddhist leaders who are collaborating together. And um, as some of the people on our trip said, we're meeting the next generation of Nelson Mandela's and Aung San Suu Kyi's. You meet somebody who says, yes, I was in prison for 12 years and, you know, however bad our prison system is, and it's really bad here, and it's crazy, the racist poverty prisons where we have millions of people behind bars, most of whom don't belong there, um, their prisons are worse. It's hard to say that. And they've come out, and some of these folks say, why would I stop now? What's the worst they can do is throw me back in prison. I know how to do that. I'm going to empower the people. And it was just so moving to meet with them and to feel that kind of courage and beauty and dignity of spirit. We met with Aung San Suu Kyi as well. Um, and she talked about how important it is to talk to all sides, to listen to everybody. You know, and she had in some other circumstances, I've heard her speak in other places, and she said, in so many words, something like this, she said, you know, it would be easy for me to remain an icon, the Nobel laureate, the woman who was in house arrest and prison for so long. Um, and she said, they never had me in prison because I never hated them. So my heart was always free. It would be easy to remain above the fray as an icon, but I'm going to do something more difficult than that that you might not even like. I'm going to become a politician. <laughs> and I'm going to talk to people you don't want me to talk to and cut deals with people and negotiate and enter the mud and the fray of relations and talk to the people that you might think have been, you know, some of the worst. Um, because I think this is the way that I can best serve my people. And it's a kind of amazing thing to hear that level of consciousness and that deliberateness that says, I will enter the difficulties, like those vows from the Dalai Lama and Shantideva. I will deliberately enter those to be of the greatest benefit for my country and the people that I love. And she talks, as she does, about what it would take, what it will take to make a just society there, the rule of law, court system, a good constitution, economic justice. Um, and it's, uh, they're very much taught um, by the Buddha as well. He says in speaking to one of the kings in the middle part of India where he traveled, people should be able to live without enduring poverty. Seed and other necessities should be given to farmers Capitalists should be su supplied for traders. Proper wages should be paid to the employed. He was speaking here a little bit about raising the minimum wage in ancient India. 
When people have security and can earn an adequate income, they will be contented and creative without fear or worry and conflict. Because of this, the country will be at peace and there will be no crime or war. So these are, I mean, it's not all that complicated, as Homer Simpson would say, duh, you know. It isn't. And yet we human beings still have a ways to go to learn to do this. And Aung San Suu Kyi carries this vision, as do many of these others, of what a just society might look like. President Obama visited a year ago and talked in his speech to the Burmese people about metta. He said, I'm so moved by the spirit, by the teachings. I've been moved by the timeless ideals of metta, the belief that our time on earth can be defined by tolerance and love. And he also went to say, went on to say, just as you have your ethnic conflicts and racism and difficulty, he said, we in America have not been immune from this, you know this, and I myself would not have even been able to stand here or speak or eat in many places a generation before. So I speak to you as one who has been through this and encourage you as we are going through learning this process that you might join us in doing this. Really amazing. I mean, we're all doing it together. And so we met, some of us that were working with the activists, with monks and people who were training uh, in nonviolence, who are doing conflict resolution skills, who are um, printing posters that will say on one side, um, it'll have a scales and on one side will be an image of the Buddha and a feather and say, peace and well-being, and the other, violence and hatred, with some image of death and destruction, and underneath, which will you choose? Which will you choose? And then some sayings from the Buddha. Of course, it's not just there, you know. It's in our society too, isn't it? Whether it's the elite and certain kinds of profit-making at the expense of the environment or other exploitation, um, the expense of the earth. In the text, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there's a king who sends his minister to the Buddha and says, Tell, tell the Buddha that because of some affront, I am thinking of making war on this nearby kingdom and see what the Blessed One has to say about this. And then the Buddha responds by asking a few questions. He says, do the people in this kingdom where you would make war meet in peace and harmony, discuss things in harmony and leave in harmony? Do they respect one another? Do they respect their elders? Do they care for the women and children and the vulnerable among them? Do they care for the nature shrines and the environment? And each time the minister says, yes, they do. And the Buddha says, then they can be expected to prosper and not decline. And so when there is a respect that's given to yourself, to those in your family, to the people you work with, 
to the difficult ones, to the enemies, as Aung San Suu Kyi would say. Remember the Dalai Lama talking about, my friend's the enemy. You know, he didn't say he didn't have enemies. He does, actually. But he called them, my friend's the enemy. I have to learn to work with them. When there's respect given, something amazing and beautiful grows out of that respect. And meditation, in a way, is a training in loving awareness, is a training in respect. So the story of Pakati, the woman at the well, Ananda, who was the beloved attendant to the Blessed One, was sent by the Buddha on a mission to offer some teachings. And returning, passed by a well near a village and seeing Pakati, a young outcast woman, asked her for water to drink, which is the only thing monks are allowed to ask for. You can't ask for food, that's silent, but you can ask for water. And she said, O oh, monk, I am too lowly born to give you water. Do not ask this of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am the untouchable caste. Imagine being born in a caste where if your shadow falls on the water or food of the Brahmins or the high caste, if your shadow does, it's thrown out because it's polluted by your presence. So this young woman. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water and looked at, and gazed at him with so much appreciation. And when he left, she followed him to find where he was going. Learning he was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Buddha and said, Oh, please help me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, that I may see and minister to him, for I've come to love Ananda. She fell in love with him in some way or other. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And Pakati, though you are born of the lowest caste, you will be a model for noble women and noble men. Follow the path of justice and kindness, and you will outshine the royal glory of queens and kings. And the invitation of these teachings, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, everyone is welcome. Every orientation, every race, every ability, every caste, every creed, the Buddha says, you are born with a noble spirit, with dignity, and you are invited into the Dharma of awakening, which is your own true nature, which is your own birthright. So when we look around the world, it could be overwhelming, and it is sometimes, climate change, economic disparity, racist poverty prisons, and continuing just injustice, continuing warfare, all these things that no amount of modern technology has stopped, has it? The internet and nanotechnology and biotechnology hasn't stopped it because of what we need to match the outer development is the inner development of the human heart, to understand our interdependence, to learn compassion for ourselves, and for all beings as our brothers and sisters, to learn wisdom. So you meditate, you take your seat under your tree of enlightenment, 
amidst the 10,000 joys and sorrows of your life, in this mystery of human incarnation. And let the mind quiet and the heart open. And you train yourself, it's called a training, to awaken the capacity of fearlessness or courage, of compassion, of presence. And you plant those seeds again and again. And as you do, beautiful things arise. As Henry David Thoreau said, though I do not believe a plant will spring up where no seed has been cast, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And if you plant the seeds of a moment of compassion, a moment of loving awareness, a moment of courage or dedication, a moment of presence, and you plant those seeds as you do in your meditation and in your practice, they grow, guaranteed. As he said, I am prepared to expect a miracle. That's how things work. You plant them, you water them, and they grow. And the beautiful thing from the teachings of the Buddha, he says, if it were not possible for you to live with wakefulness and compassion and inner freedom and dignity, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you, I offer these teachings that you might take them into your own heart and become that Buddha that you really are. So it was a precious thing to go on this journey to Burma and to India, but we're all on our journeys, you know, and when I finish the talk tonight, I might drive back in the city and sit with my mom and hold her hand and breathe, ah, ah, with her raspy breath, the ends of her life, and thank her, which I have. I said, thank you, Mom, you've been such a good mom. My brother's all with her. She said, I have? I said, oh, yeah. She said, good, thank you, good. She knows she has, actually. She's a cool lady. She's one of the least judgmental people I've ever met, one of the most non-judgmental. All my friends used to come over in high school and they would talk to my mom because she wouldn't judge them, you know. Do you mind if I leave my LSD here for a little while? <laughs> it's okay, you know, just don't take any of it until we talk first, right? Okay, all right. I heard about it, it's interesting. She's, she was very, very, very dear, loved by a lot of people. You know, and so we would sing to her the last few days, my brothers and I, and tell her stories and things. And it's so mysterious, you know, it really is. So I've told my stories for tonight, and I hope there's something in them that reminds you of who you really are, what's possible for you. Let's sit for a moment. <laughs> Sit in the midst of your pilgrimage of life.
every new day a part of your journey, every breath. And sit with loving awareness and dignity. wonder, and reflect as you become quiet, what seeds do you want to plant in your own heart and mind? Because as you plant them in your own heart and mind, they will also take root around you in your family and community in the earth. What are the seeds that you most wish to plant? So a couple of little reminders. Next week, Phil. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.